To everyone, welcome. Welcome to EPIC, the Irish Emigration Museum. My name is Patrick Green, and I am the uh, director of the museum and its CEO. So all of us from EPIC are delighted that the Royal Irish Academy chose EPIC for the launch of Irish Lives in, in America. It's a wonderful book. There's a poignant aspect to this event. Five of us here this, this evening are related to Beryl Isdell, who ran the Royal Irish Academy for 16 years in the 1980s and the 1990s. And I have very fond memories of visiting her, her there uh, at the Academy when I was a great deal younger than I am now. Welcome to the launch of Irish Lives in America, edited by Liz, Liz Evers and Neve Gallagher. Uh, to do the next stage of this process, I'd like to welcome Neville Lisdell. Thank you, Patrick, and good evening to you all. Uh, I'm really thrilled to be here tonight. Uh, Patrick's given away part of it because this is sort of almost a family event. Uh, and the linkage with the Royal Irish Academy. Uh, I had a wonderful visit there, I guess it was seven, eight years ago. It's, it's too long and I need to go back. So the, there's a number of linkages which mean that I'm standing here tonight uh, to be honoured to ask to launch a really wonderful book about Irish lives in America. And there's a, there's a congruence here with Epic as well, and the story that it tells. They're congruent stories. And the story is one that, to me, is very special. Now, you can hear I've lost my Irish accent. Uh, I was actually born in Northern Ireland, really, but um, I've, lo I've lost that. But as I've moved around the world and I've worked in 11 countries uh, on five continents, lived in them, and as I, I traveled other places, I really discovered the uniqueness of being Irish and what that meant. And part of it was my now anodyne accent, and people would say, uh, where are you from? And I would say, Ireland. They said, oh, you're Irish. Oh, yes, well, I've got an uncle or whatever. But the, 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 the reaction was a really positive one. And I won't mention any other countries, but if I said I was from one beginning with an E, um, they would say, oh, really? Yes, okay. And that mark uh, of the specialness that is perceived and is real in terms of the way that Irish people relate to the world and relate to other people is what really made me think about this museum. And if you go back, and some of the stories are here, of really the, the reasons that the Irish had to leave Ireland, it's a very sad and a very tragic tale in many ways. And to some degree, we, over, we focus a little bit too much and some of the bad things. And then it occurred to me that actually, if you, as I went around the world, there's so many people who are influential, doing wonderful things, making their mark on society, who had an Irish heritage. And of course, there are many presidents of the United States who, who, have, who share that as well. And that then made me do some, some research. And yes, I uncovered so many stories Stories, also told here, stories of exceptional imprint put on the world and in this book in America that my people, the Irish people, had brought about. So when I was approached to be here for the launch, the answer was a yes. Because once again, in wonderful style, the stories of some of the people who've left Ireland and specifically here gone to the United States, it 
very clearly told. Now, the one thing that you always will find, if anyone has got just a little bit of Irish ancestry, they will know that they had an un a great uncle who came from County Clare or from somewhere. And then you say, well, what's your other ancestry? Well, you see, I'm part German, I'm part of this, that, and the other. Oh, where from? Well, somewhere in Germany. I mean, it, it just, the lineage is, is always there. So I'm proud tonight to say to all of you, this is special. This is about our people. This is about what they have done, good and bad. By the way, we have a little vault down in, the, in, in Epic, and we focus on the notorious Irish. Ned Kelly, you know. Um, we weren't all angels, we still aren't. But we tell all those stories, and that's part of that imprint. So thanks for being here this evening. I know we're going to do a bit of a Q&A, but I want to say to you, this is just a wonderful piece of recording some of the people who've made, Irish people who've made their mark on America. Thank you very much for being here. I'd like to call on Niamh Gallagher, one of the editors of Irish Lives in America. Considerably smaller. Uh, thank you so much to Patrick and Neville for those wonderful words of welcome and introduction, and to EPIC for hosting us here this evening. And can I say just what a pleasure it is to actually be here in person with you all for the launch of our book. When Liz and I conceived the idea for the book in 2019, we had no idea we would be launching it in the middle of a global pandemic. If we had known, we might have included some more doctors and scientists, or maybe not, and we certainly would have included Typhoid Mary, but I'm glad we didn't. Nonetheless, it is wonderful to be with you here for the launch, and it is very appropriate that, on the eve of Thanksgiving, mine is a speech giving thanks. When Liz and I were putting the book together, we had no idea that we were actually doing the easy part. So many people have made this evening possible, and we're extremely grateful to each and every one of them who have worked so hard to make us look good. Our first thanks have to go to the contributors, and it's lovely to see some of them in person here today. All responded generously to our request that they revisit the biographies that they had written so long ago, and some submitted comprehensive revisions for us. Particular thanks has to go to Angela Burke for expanding her entry on Maeve Brennan, to Gordon Ledbetter for his revisions of John McCormack, to Francis Carroll for his additions to Alexander Brown, to Maureen Murphy for revising Patrick Payton, Michael Loden, Logan, and especially Annie Moore, um, to John, to, sorry, to, to, <laughs> there's my Boris Johnson moment, <laughs> Peppa Pig, um, <laughs> to Owen McGee for his updates to Joseph Patrick MacDonald and John Philip Holland, and to our former DIB colleagues, the always and wonderful Larry and Linda, for their help and their support, as well as their revisions. Our second thanks have to go to the team in the Royal Irish Academy, uh, those from publications and communications, from the DIB advisory board, our DIB colleagues, and our managing editors. Particular thanks has to go to Ruth, Valeria, Fidelma, Helena, Karen, Horick, Kate O'Malley, James Quinn and James Maguire. From concept to design, from our mad pitch to Ruth in the kitchen of the Academy House to the launch here tonight, they have all been so supportive, encouraging and professional and our heartfelt thanks goes to you all. Special mention has to go to Margaret Kelleher and Ambassador Dan Mulhall both of whom, from the get-go, have been so supportive and encouraging. Margaret gave freely of her time and assistance, and in return wouldn't even let us buy her a cake one day. And Dan Mulhall wrote the most wonderful foreword, conveying his experience of Irish America, its rich history and contemporary expressions. Both have been champions for us on both sides of the Atlantic, and we can't thank them enough. A special mention also has to go to Patrick Green and the Epic Museum for giving us such a wonderful space in which to launch our book. At the Dictionary of Irish Biography, we write the histories, but walking around here, it brings the words to life. 
You can see the scientists and the politicians, the artists and the poets, and even, as Patrick said, the outlaws and the scoundrels. And it brings home to me just how far the Irish has travelled, have, have travelled. In the foreword to the book, Dan Mulhall wrote, in my time as ambassador, I have come to view the Irish-American story as an epic tale of travail and transformation, a valiant journey from adversity to achievement. We hope our book, Irish Lives in America, explores just a little part of that epic tale and gives a sense to the reader of Ireland's continued and significant impact on the culture and history of America. And on that very topic, we must also thank our panellists, Patrick, Miriam and Diane, for coming here this evening to explore the concept of what it is to be Irish in America today. Of the more than 34 million who claim Irish heritage, how many now look to the old country with misty-eyed nostalgia? Or do they see themselves as part of a global world in which their Irishness is only a part? Finally, on this Thanksgiving Eve, our heartfelt thanks goes to all of you for coming here tonight to share this with us, whether in person or online. And I very much hope you enjoy the evening and, of course, buy armloads of our book. And now I'm going to hand you over to Patrick Gagan, Chair of the DIB Advisory Board and Chair of our panel discussion tonight. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, you are uh, very welcome. We've heard some uh, wonderful words already about uh, this magnificent building that we're in, what EPIC represents, and also then the contribution that uh, Irish lives of all kinds have made to America. And that's some of the things we're going to tease out uh, with our panel. The theme for this discussion is Irish lives in America, underdogs or overlords. And I'm delighted to introduce our panel. Professor Diane Negra is Professor of Film Studies and Screen Culture at University College Dublin and is the Chair of the Irish Fulbright Commission Board. Dr. Miriam Nyan Gray is Associate Director of Glucksman Ireland House, NYU, and is NYU's Global Coordinator for Irish Studies. And she was one of the organisers of a brilliant conference that took place uh, over uh, three weeks uh, earlier this month on where do we go from here, revisiting black-Irish relations. Uh, Neville, of course, needs no introduction, but I'll do it anyway. Neville Isdell, of course, the founder of Epic, and he's a former chair and CEO of Coca-Cola uh, Company, and he's currently uh, the co-chair of the World Wildlife Fund. And then last, but of course by no means least, uh, Liz Evers, a writer and editor uh, with the Royal Irish Academy's Dictionary of Irish Biography Project, and the co-editor of the volume being launched tonight. And Liz... I might begin with you, and maybe not the obvious question of the 50 who made the cut and who were included, but maybe a more difficult question of who didn't make the cut, and who are these figures who uh, are in the Dictionary of Irish Biography, uh, Irish Lives in America, but who you decided to exclude? <laughs> well, exclude is a very harsh word. Um, we had just an absolute wealth of material to work with and so it was the longest process was the selection process um, and there was a lot of fabulous people who didn't make the cut um, some of whom have been mentioned already tonight uh, we mentioned typhoid mary being one who's one of the more timely figures but we had somewhere between four and five hundred people to choose from in the dictionary of irish biography and our approach was that we wanted to have a group that was as representative as possible of Irish immigrants to America. So uh, we had so we kind of clustered people into, I suppose, areas of endeavour, careers, things that they were notable for, and then we tried to whittle it down to people who were the most represent, or were particularly strong representatives of those groups. Um, and yes, yeah, so along the way, there was a, there was a bit of a hatchet job on, on 450 of the people. We had help, great help from Margaret Kelleher in doing that, and we kind of we whittled it down to I think about 110 people eventually after a lot of wrangling, and then we we put it to the vote, and uh, it was all terribly scientific, and uh, we had a spreadsheet where we voted on who our favourites were, 
and uh, then we, we kind of argue the toss as to who should go in and who shouldn't go in. But yeah, I mean, our, our, our main ambition was that we wanted to be as representative as we could of a really broad picture of Irish America and to kind of, I suppose, challenge our own and maybe other people's idea of what Irish America is, which certainly in my mind is very much kind of dominated by the idea of the, the, the famine generation and beyond. But we wanted to kind of capture people who came before and people who were kind of representative of that broader picture of Ireland as well as the experience in America. So we have all sorts of people in there. We have people who were very well connected already who went over. They were wealthy already and they went on to become some of the country's first millionaires. We have people who went over with little but the, the clothes on their back and looking for a better life, sometimes successfully, other times not. We have soldiers, we have entertainers, we have um, artists, we have architects, we have medics, we have scientists and we have servants. So we really did try to have as broad a spectrum as possible. Um, but yes, I think I'll be arguing for a while about who should and shouldn't have been in. And already I know I've had a few people ask, is this person in, is this person in? And maybe, maybe volume two, <laughs> hint, hint. <laughs> and, and Miriam, it's interesting because the Dictionary of Irish Biography has certain criteria for admission. You know, first of all, you have to be dead. And then you have to have, uh, you have to either be Irish born or have a significant career in Ireland. And Miriam, it just strikes me that if you had ex uh, widened the terms to include sons and daughters of Irish born people, you actually, it wouldn't have been 500 that you were cutting down the numbers from. It would have been, you know, 5,000, 50,000, you know you know, many more thousands. So uh, it, that kind of gives you a sense of the scale as well. Absolutely, Patrick. Um, thank you, by the way, for everyone for inviting me and congratulations to the editors. And thank you for the opportunity for me to be in Epic. I've sent so many of my students and tourists from America to visit and uh, I'm embarrassed to say it's my first opportunity to be here. So thank you so much for this opportunity. Um, indeed, Patrick, we spend a lot of time uh, at New York University um, looking at, you know, the Irish-born generation, of course, and then trying to piece together a little bit from even the first-born, first American-born generation. Um, and, it, you know, that can be a little bit more challenging, right, in terms of... Um, sometimes speculating or pulling out threads of people's biography that would suggest that their ethnic connection to Ireland, that sensibility of Irishness is important to them. Um, and certainly demographically, if we went beyond just the Irish-born generation, you're looking at um, so many more. And not, you know, if you go another generation further, arguably, uh, again, it's so fascinating to think about how strong, going back to some of the remarks that Neville made earlier in terms of how strong Irish ethnicity is in particular in the American context. It's something that we take a little bit for granted, I think, um, in the Irish context. It's not, um, it's, not, it's not the same across all ethnic and racial groups in the United States, and that's something that's uh, really interesting to ponder. And Diane, it's a very interesting way of framing the discussion underdogs or overlords. And I suppose there are some entries that there may be clear underdogs, others may be overlords. Some maybe aren't easy to categorise. And it's also interesting to see, I know you're involved in this Modalities of Irishness project, that it's interesting to see how maybe these, these definitions maybe change. I think they are changing. And, you know, first let me say how happy I am to, to play a small role in, in celebrating this book, which is just a wonderful achievement on so many levels. It gives us an opportunity to reflect on, you know, all of the kind of diverse contributions to uh, American culture that, that, that Irish people have made. But you're exactly right that I, I think that we're in a moment of really marked change on so many levels in American life. And it implies, among other things, a, a status change in Irishness itself. I mean, for one thing, it's very hard to talk about Irishness now without talking about digital culture. You know, people take in information, for example, about Ireland from Facebook more than any other source. So we're in a very different moment just in terms of the prevalence of, of, of sort of digital culture on many levels. But I also think more broadly that... Uh, 
the aspirational confidence that is such a big part of the story of the Irish in America is no longer in evidence in many different ways. And so we could even go so far as to say that at the moment, many manifestations of Irishness in American popular culture, which is what I study and work on primarily, have skewed towards something that is much darker and negative. You might say that, that there are signs that a certain version of Irishness is being captured for white nationalism, for example, in America. So there is, I think, a very, a very notable turn. And it's, it's in a direction that I think invites our scrutiny and our thoughtfulness. Neville, I know that when you were setting up Epic, there was, and you spoke about the things that were driving you, and, and I know you've been involved in, say, programs like the Irish Minds, where you've explored the idea of whether there's something distinctive or special about being Irish. Do you think that comes tr through in, in, I suppose, the lives and in, I suppose, the things that we even have here in Epic, that, that, that distinctiveness or that special quality? Yes, I do. Um, I think that the Irish are essentially people people. Um, and they're storytellers. And both of those definitions, therefore, fall within people who enjoy sense of community, in, enjoy expressing themselves. And I think that's that's that culture goes way back to some of the very bad times when people had to pull together, find their own entertainment, and it's carried through. Uh, you know, if you take, I want to pick in any other European culture, but uh, people are more reserved. People uh, have more ritualistic, uh, sorry, divisive ritualistic things, stay with family, the like. I remember I, I was working in Europe in a particular country, and uh, we actually uh, had a, for our first Christmas, I invited a whole lot of the people who worked for me around, plus spouses. The spouses had never met each other. That would never happen with Ireland. Every, everyone would know everyone, and they'd know everything about everyone, or they'd think they knew everything about everyone. Um, and I, I think it's, it's that uh, sense of community that, that people have. And, and again, it's all part of the storytelling. We're, we're, we're outgoing people. And I, I think that's really what has made people successful outside. Because you've got to remember that when you know, the, the first ships came out of Ireland, and the Irish people got off the ship and they went to New York, they were faced with signs outside uh, flats and residences, no Irish need apply. And from there, how many presidents have there been with Irish ancestry in the United States? We overcome these things, we strive, and, and part of that is being able to really work very effectively with other people. Liz, Neville is describing there the American dream, and in a way that could be almost the subtitle of the book. You know, it's the promise, the possibility of the American dream. But it's interesting reading the entries that the American dream doesn't always work out for the figures. And, you know, one of the underdogs in the book, Annie Moore, has mm. a really, there's a very moving, poignant entry by Maureen Murphy. And it's very powerful how, even though she's a much commercialized figure now, but her own life had this really grinding poverty. Yeah, and it, it, her story was mistold for so long as this kind of American dream narrative of this uh, young woman who moved over from Cork when she was 17. She was following her parents over in uh, 1892. And she is known because she was the first person to cross the threshold of the new immigration center at Ellis Island. And uh, well, technically, she mightn't have been the first person, but she was the most, she was the kind of most presentable person. She was pushed to the, the top of the line. At this, that supposedly, there was a couple of German fellows in front of her who got shoved. <laughs> she was put forward. So all the local dignitaries were there, and there was a big um, celebration, because obviously it was the immigration center was opening, and it was this bold promise of you know setting forth on American soil and starting your new life. And so Annie was, uh, was the first one through, and she was given a commemorative $10 uh, coin, a gold coin. She had her name in the papers, and off she went. And so then the story that followed was that 
she headed west to Indiana and then that she made her way eventually to Texas. Somewhere along the way, she, she married a descendant of, uh, or at least a relation of uh, Daniel O'Connell. And then she died at the age of 50 in Waco, Texas, when she was hit by a streetcar in a tragic accident. Turns out that wasn't her at all. <laughs> but for years, that was the story that was told. And it was only corrected in the, in the noughties uh, by a couple of genealogists when they started digging. But the, the, the myth of Annie Moore had gotten so far that relations of this other Annie Moore were invited to commemorative events and were, you know, or she was featured in songs. There was young adult novels written about her, you know, great adventures in America. And unfortunately, the real Annie Moore is probably more typical of the experience of a lot of Irish immigrants to America in that she arrived in New York and she never left New York. She ended up living in the slums in the Lower East Side for her the rest of her life. She married uh, another immigrant from Germany who worked in the, in the Fulton Street fish market. They had 11 children, six of whom died. And, you know, she eventually died herself again at the age of 50, which is probably where the confusion arose because she was the same age as the other anymore when she died. And she was buried in an unmarked grave. And, you know, she was just typical experience, I'd imagine, of an awful lot of immigrant women um, from Ireland to America. And it's kind of, there's a, there's a bitter irony to the fact that she was celebrated in this kind of icon of the American dream, whereas actually her reality was far from it. And Miriam, it's interesting that there are also some very prominent, or figures who maybe were prominent in their own lifetime as great progressives, uh, uh, breaking new grounds, who perhaps aren't as well remembered or recognized now. Uh, some figures have maybe uh, they're not they're not as significant they're not as iconic maybe or perhaps they should be better remembered. Yeah, I'm always interested in the disruptors and um, and I think sometimes that we lean in to a very you know we paint Irish America in a, in a kind of a monolithic way and of course like no group is like that. Um, uh, you know the 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 those who. Uh, the, the, the profile of people that I find particularly intriguing are those who remained incredibly loyal to their sensibility of Irishness and their opportunities to celebrate their ethnicities in different ways. I'm thinking about Dr. Gertrude B. Kelly, for example, Paul O'Dwyer in New York and more recent times, people like that who were simultaneously intensely global citizens and they didn't see, need to trade off or um, you know, only think about their Irishness at the expense of like, looking at a worldview around them. Um, and of course, um, Mother Jones, my goodness, what uh, we know, you know, we don't know that much about her. Her, her you know, th this entry is so wonderful. We don't know that much about her. Her you know, early life and things like that. But my goodness, one of the most famous uh, women in America in the early 20th century, and at least until I went to the United States about 15 years ago, I'd hardly heard of her here. I think her narrative has been rehabilitated somewhat, but it's wonderful to see her captured in this great collection. And the, even the figures you mentioned, Paula Dwyer, you know, described, you know, described at the time as the conscience of New York politics, this great civil rights, civil liberties lawyer, uh, Gertrude Kelly, her work as a radical or as a surgeon or as an agitator, that Mother Jones and her children's crusade and her agitation, they're, they're very much progressive voices uh, throughout American history. Yeah, and like, for example, you know, we think that Gertrude Kelly, um, you know, lived in a Boston marriage. She was, you know, what we call a, a gay woman of her time. And what I like about how we fit her into the context of her life is that didn't seem at odds with how she wore her Irishness or interacted with the Irish community, which is not initially what one might expect of um, this woman operating in, in New York Irish circles 120, 100, 100 years ago. So these individual biographical narratives are so much fun to pull out and think about and link to these wider themes, um, in particular in as much as they speak to you know, what we, how we look back on um, the historical examples that, that Diane's work draws on for the present. And I wondered, though, Miriam, when you also look at the themes that were being explored in your conference uh, earlier this month, are, is there also the darker side as well, that you know, it's the progressive voices, but then there's 
the voices that are more regressive and, and opposed to uh, broadening, broadening out the American dream to others? Yeah, I mean, you know, the Irish are everywhere in the American experience over the last couple of hundred years. So sometimes I, people will be surprised when you say, well, you know, some Irish people who went to the United States were involved in slavery. They had enslaved people. Um, they were, so we can't segregate ourselves, to use that word, out of that experience in terms of as people, we bought in hook, line and sinker to some extent in terms of those um, undulating waters of American history, no less than we did in other parts of the world. So yes, there absolutely are those dark sides to our history um, that really um, works like this um, give us a great foundation to, um, to, to, to shed light on, on those darknesses and, and, and bring, you know, bring some um, conversation around difficult topics because they're, they're probably more important than the celebratory ones at times. And um, that does very much connect with your work and uh, goes back to something Neville said that in the past... Irishness was maybe a badge of inferiority, whereas perhaps now Irishness has become maybe something that's something that's an elite status perhaps to have. Mm. This has been striking me more and more lately when I'm in the States, and I'm there quite a bit. Um, in fact, what stands out in my mind most recently was the summer of 2020, when I found myself in, in a very affluent part of Long Island where there were sort of multi-million dollar beach homes um, on the South Shore, and, and, and looking down a sort of a small coastal uh, area, in front of these houses, every other one had an Irish flag in front of it. And I do think that if we're going to really understand how Irishness is working right now in American life, we have to be prepared to adjust something which, which Americans themselves hang on to, um, which is the idea of the Irish, and it's a fully historically justified narrative, of the Irish as striving, as, as it kind of exemplary uh, figures in the American story of people who made their way, who, you know, over generations, uh, you know, generally tended to be able to move ahead and secure um, a very significant place in American life. But if we're going to talk about Irishness now, I do think we have have to increasingly look at elite, well, what, I, what I would call elite studies, it's a sort of branch of, of, of sociology, but work that tries to figure out how wealthy people in America tell their own stories. And I think Irishness is often very important to this class of person who looks back and remembers, you know, difficult journeys from this country, remembers difficult years trying to get by in the country, this kind of thing, and, and feels that their position is now fully justified because they can reference that history. And you showed me a, a remarkable image of a, a skull, mm. and there was a, a, the, the, the Irish, the Irish cap, and the, the it was the connection between the Irishness and and, and and kind of much darker imagery. Yeah. Well, this is another, I think, really fascinating development. And again, I tend to, as you see, I sometimes get prompted um, toward different research ideas by experiences that I kind of have on the ground. And I was standing in a a shop uh, last summer in New York, and the man beside me had an Irish to the bone t-shirt and it, it the image is a, a kind of a, a skull I don't know if you've seen this Miriam but with a, you know a, a sort of a grinning skull face with a pipe or a, a cap or shamrock images around it this kind of thing um, so it, 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 it this kind of new iconography sloganizes itself by saying Irish to the bone implying a kind of an innate Irishness that can never be traded away but it also then draws in something that, that I would think of as being necropolitical in other words this imagery is speaking a kind of a disenfranchised white working class Americanism, but it's also making recourse to Irishness as kind of like a supplemental discourse to that. In other words, it's, it's referencing a history of Irish striving in America, but it's mixing, it creates this kind of functional paradox of both a, the image of the congenial and, and, and jaunty Irishness that you see in you know old Bing Crosby movies, for example, but then it also insists through its emphasis on skulls and skeletons on that being a kind of a moribund state. So I, I hope it's clear that I think Irishness is in this really interesting state of, of development at the moment. 
but it's capable now of being this kind of sliding signifier, and it's mixing its metaphors in all kinds of ways, from things that are recognizably of the past and a generally happier story of Irishness into something that I think is shading it in, into more grim territory, partly as a recognition of just how unequal American society is becoming. Neville, when you when you you've mentioned traveling around different continents, working in different parts of the world, seeing the the the, the ins, getting insights into different nationalities, would there be a, a book launched German lives in America or French lives in America? Would there be that same interest in? And, and maybe the same sense of pride in, in cataloging the, the contributions of, of people from these other countries in, in somewhere like the United States? Or is this something unique and distinctive about us in Ireland that we love to look back and, and, and write these histories and make these connections? Well, I mean, I'm biased in this, so, you know, you, you know what I'm probably going to say, right? Um, I, look, I, I, do, I do think that's true, and as a validator of what we're saying here about, about Irish specialness, and I know this is, this, the book is about Irish in America, but I was brought up from the age of 10 when I left Ireland in, uh, in Africa. And it's the same in Africa, and it's the same with, with African nations, because the priests, the nuns, the teachers, the lawyers that, that uh, helped the independence-seeking uh, uh, Africans, they were Irish. And so I, I'm, so I'm hopping away from the book, but as a validation of the qualities that we're talking about in America, we're actually, I, I saw them in Africa at the same time. So I, I, that, that's why I do harp on about that there's a, a level of specialness. Now, I'm not saying that everyone that went to America was uh, well, well received or was someone who added positively to society. Um, we are, we've got all, all the bad ones. Um, and that's true of Irish around the world. You know, yeah, there's, a, there's a guy called Che Guevara Lynch that you may have heard of, okay? Um, so the, the, that commonality is what reinforces my view about the, the specialness of the Irish that went, that went to America, but also went around the world. And the, the phrase that I've used with regard to Epic is not that all the Irish were successful, but that the Irish immigrants punched above their weight. And on, I've got no data to you know, val validate this, but I think it's absolutely true that, that from a small island, uh, there are more people who are very successful in all their ways of life, in very many different ways, uh, than, uh, for, than from any other part of the world on a percentage basis. And just to follow up on that, and there also is that emotional connection. You know, even you saw it with uh, President Biden calling uh, the Taoiseach to congratulate him on the, all, the win against the All Blacks, and uh, he called the, the Irish team then as well. That I don't think you would see that for for other countries or other achievements that people feel it emotionally uh, when the connection is there in a very different way, I think, than perhaps uh, you see other, other ways. Can I take it again in, in another context? Um, so I, I live in Barbados today, okay? And uh, there was a new government came in and they, they want to turn things around and the, the prime minister is very forward-looking. Uh, and she was, the country had been in trouble. It was rather like a recession of 08, 09 type thing. It was almost like the tiger exploring. And what I did was I, actually, I, I talked to her and I said, look, would you like some help from someone who's faced these things before? And she said, yes, uh, yes, that'd be interesting. And I said, well, I could get Enda Kenny to come out and talk to you about what, what he did, all right? Uh, after the tiger collapsed, and in fact, Michael Noonan came, came as well. And she said to me, oh, yes, Irish, yes, that's fine. So there was this reticence about, you know, well, someone else to come and tell us colonial-wise what we're going to do. Uh, but when you said Ireland and, and Irish, that was it. And they came out, and we spent hours with the cabinet as Enda and Michael talked about what they had done in terms of Ireland. So I'm sorry I'm wandering away from America, but 
I think there's a validation around the world which says that that, that proposition is accurate. And Liz, it's interesting this going back to that whole idea of the overlord or the underdog or you know Neville has said you know it's it's you know you've got the you know ones who do good ones who who don't do good and they're all included but you know it's interesting when you look back into their own context you know people who might have thought they were doing good actually did substantial harm or damage and I'm, I'm thinking of the entry on uh, is it uh, Pierce Butler yeah. and uh, bringing about the fugitive slave law and as you see uh, you see some remarkable contributions that in, in that way, in, 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 when you look back on it now, you see the destruction that uh, some of these actions brought. Yeah, I mean, Pierce Butler is obviously a, a very good example there, where uh, he was a British colonial officer. Well, he's, he was from Carlow originally, but then was in the colonial army first in uh, Canada and French Canada, and then came down to America, and uh, when he left the army then, he married into the kind of slave-owning elite of South Carolina, and uh, had huge tracts of lands, and he was a, you know, had a lot of slaves himself. And then he was, he fought in the, in the War of Independence on the American side, he was like, never mind those Brits anymore, he became fully American. And, uh, he was then one of the three Irish signatories to the U.S. Constitution. So, you know, if you keep the slave stuff out, that sounds good. <laughs> but his also his biggest uh, contribution, I suppose, to the Constitution was the inclusion of the Fugitive Slave Clause, which very much enshrined the slave as property. And so if a slave escaped into another state from the one they were being held in, they had to be returned to their owner, which obviously is a, is a fairly horrifying legacy. But those were the conditions of the time. He was, you know, protecting his interests and the interests of his family and of his fellow immigrants as well. Uh, but there's a, there's a few people like that in the book who maybe it's not explicitly teased out the negative impact, but it's implied. Another person will be Alexander Brown, who was an incredibly successful businessman. And he um, moved over. He was fairly well connected anyway, and he moved over and was doing, um, he was importing uh, linen from Ireland. And then he started exporting tobacco and cotton. And this was the early 19th century. Ooh, we have some company. Uh, that was in the early 19th century. So we can guess how that stuff was produced. Um, and so he was very much enriched by the institution of slavery, but he also made huge contributions to American society. He opened one of the first railroads, the Baltimore to Ohio line. He opened private banks. They were the first of their kind in the country as well, but it was, you know, probably in his mind, this was all great work. Um, but, you know, the legacy is, is quite a dark one. And some of the scouts that we have in the, in the we have two scouts in the book, who would have opened up the, the western frontier and brought settlers into land that, you know, was someone else's land, and then, of course, would have contributed to, um, you know, the, the disenfranchisement of Native Americans. And at the same time, then, you've got some very ordinary lives, or what might appear to be an ordinary life, but they make extraordinary contributions in other ways. So I'm thinking of someone like, say, Margaret Maher, who mm. preserved the poetry of Emily Dickinson. I think Emily Dickinson referred to her as warm and wild and mighty. And uh, there you see uh, you know, nothing, nothing maybe exceptional in, 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 in the person, but they did something exceptional and remarkable. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's, it's, it's great to be able to include a domestic servant in this collection of 50 people because there's, there's not too many of them whose lives have been recorded. And obviously she, again, represents this huge body of, of women in particular, Irish immigrant women who moved over to America and ended up in domestic service. And she just so happens to be getting with the Dickinson family. And uh, she was actually asked by Emily Dickinson to destroy her poetry after she died. Emily wanted it to be burnt. And uh, Margaret Marr had just had held on to the stuff in her trunk till eventually another family member dug it out and, and there we, now we have Emily Dickinson's poetry. And we also have the only adult image of Emily Dickinson, thanks to Margaret Marr, who she was asked to get rid of that too and she didn't. <laughs> so her little acts of disobedience have had an enormous impact. But otherwise she would, her name would have been lost, I think, to, to history. 
And Diane, you know, so much of your work on popular culture uh, finds so much that resonates here then as well, because you have the filmmakers like Rex Ingram or the stars like Maureen O'Hara. But popular culture is a is a very interesting lens to to examine these ideas of of the Irish in America as well. I love the entry on Rex Ingram. That's kind of my favourite one, and and I think because, you know. Ingram, who, who for, for those who haven't um, had a chance to go through the book uh, closely yet, was just an extraordinary figure in early Hollywood. And, you know, the, this kind of sense of maybe in some ways he was too principled to last in Hollywood. And even though he made acclaimed films like Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse and things like this, he, he didn't linger. And he, he wound up setting up shop for himself as, as a filmmaker in Nice um, in the south of France, quite remarkably. So I think one of the, the, the kind of things that I get from this book is, is and I'm so happy that you included, you know, the lives of, of domestic workers and things like. It seems to me a vital intervention, but but this kind of sense that across a, a, an enormous spectrum, you know, that you're talking about people who were celebrated in their own time, people who, you know, came to be celebrated later in some cases or their contributions recognized later, um, but also people who, who never had any level of acclaim whatsoever. Rex Ingram is such an interesting case for me because even though he did enjoy, um, you know, a certain amount of limelight for a time, he also didn't carry on in a Hollywood career and, and ended, you know, in a certain state of obscurity, even though he now has a, a star uh, on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, but wasn't necessarily appreciated as much uh, during the time when he was making films. And much loved by James Joyce, who references Indeed. him in his, in his works as well, the yeah. pageant master. Uh, Miriam, is there any ever sense that uh, any of these Irish Americans then see themselves as having a role in building a bridge between the United States and Ireland, uh, is there a sense that they feel a, a kind of responsibility or take up a responsibility there? Yeah, I think um, in particular, um, I've argued this in another setting with Dr. Gertrude Kelly, and I think Paul O'Dwyer, again, to mention them again, are really good examples of what I call kind of brokers between Ireland and the United States. And in particular, Paul and um, uh, Dr. Kelly, you can see instances in their biography where there are connections to Ireland that remain. Because let's face it, for some Irish immigrants who leave for the United States, they're not that well connected. And a lot of that is to do with timing and the technology in terms of how they could remain connected to Ireland. Um, but notwithstanding even technolo techno technological issues and things like that, some Irish immigrants in the United States remain incredibly connected back to Ireland. And they do um, exist in this, I guess, maybe what anthropologists would call, call a kind of a liminal position at times in terms of translating Ireland to Americans and Irish Americans, and then on the other side um, doing uh, it in the opposite direction. And these tend to be very well-placed individuals who are very actively you know, connecting back to Ireland on political issues, on social issues, on cultural issues, whatever they may be. And they, they really form a really important um, kind of connectivity in that Atlantic space um, that is so well drawn out in some of these biographies in particular. And Liz, your co-editor mentioned the wonderful foreword by our ambassador in the United States, uh, Dan Mulhall, and he talks about some of the figures like Thomas Francis Marr and he, uh, some of these other figures who had a huge impact on generations of Irish-American politicians, people like John F. Kennedy, mm. uh, people who Kennedy referenced when he was in uh, speaking in, in, in the, at the Oireachtas on his visit to Ireland. And uh, I think the ambassador very much captures, again, the, on the emotional level, what these connections mean for, for them at the time, but also I think what it means for people nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. He was very well placed to do the forward. We're very uh, grateful that he did. And it's, um, it's a very uh, generous and warmly put forward. Um, I think that the person that stands out for me that he mentioned was Margaret Hockery in that as well, as um, a great example of that kind of just... She was a very ordinary person who went on to achieve uh, great things. And he, he kind of says it in the same breath as the likes of Thomas Francis Marr and the fact that 23 of the 46 presidents of America have been of Irish heritage. 
And it is just that, that, that broad sweep of influence is really incredible that you can have someone that's open. Margaret Hockery, obviously, was just a, a regular immigrant who went on to become quite wealthy through her establishing a bakery and a dairy. And then, you know, it was entirely philanthropic. She never kept a penny for herself. Everything was given to build orphanages and to feed people, including during the Civil War. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it was his, his introduction is just beautiful and really um, encapsulates his experience of going around America and being kind of the, the figurehead for Ireland with the people that he's met and just this real sense of just impact, you know, that everywhere has been touched by every, every building, every city, that there's a kind of an imprint of Ireland on it. Uh, some wonderful headings in the book that you've used, uh, frontier, politics, business, uh, stage and screen, medicine, and then STEM and technology, all part, uh, lives of conscience, art and architecture, and print. And I wonder when you and Eve were working on, you know, your long list and then your shorter list and then the eventual results, I wonder, were you thinking of perhaps some of the tensions that are, that we've been kind of exploring here tonight in terms of that. Uh, I didn't come up with the, the framing of the, the underdog and overlord, but we've been very much seeing, I think it was probably to tease out some of those tensions between those who made a positive contribution, mm. those who didn't, those who were downtrodden, and those who were perhaps uh, trodding down on others, those who achieved great success and others who perhaps... Uh, achieved, had a significant life, but perhaps without that success. You know, different faces of the American dream, in some cases, perhaps contributing to an American nightmare. Um, I wonder, were you aware and were you, were, were you and Eve conscious of this, that maybe the tension between different types of entries, those who succeeded massively, mm. those who perhaps were crushed by the experience, uh, those who, who did good, those who had a, had a more uh, mixed or a darker legacy? Yeah, we did, we did want to have it as a, as a balanced view rather than it being a kind of a best of. Um, because certainly I think in our initial conception was a bit like the best of and very celebratory. And uh, I think we, we came to the conclusion with a little prompting that that maybe was, was a bit too exceptionalist. Um, you know, and this idea of the Irish just being this fabulous breed who went over and only did great things, and it, it really didn't capture the full picture. So yeah, we were we were trying to get that kind of balance, and even like so with figures who were successful um, in their fields, the likes of say um, Jerome Connor, who ended up dying in, in penury, and uh, the John Mulvaney, another artist who painted Custer's Last Rally, and you know. It, that's one of the most celebrated paintings of, uh, in America and captures this incredible moment of history and definitely skews it a certain way. Um, and again, he died poor and alcoholic and possibly of suicide. So it's this kind of, there's, within those stories as well, there's that trajectory of success and failure and, you know, humanism, I suppose. And Diane, I wonder if you were to look at it chronologically as well. I'm, I wonder you might be able to chart the different shifts in views of Irishness or changes in the identity, maybe post-famine, uh, pre-famine, uh, maybe even looking in more recent decades that maybe that sense of identity has also been changing uh, when different things happen and as, as maybe events or... Uh, changes in politics or society uh, leads to a reframing of some of these questions? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, I would say that, that the United States has, has for a long time had a very proprietary relationship toward Irishness. And one of the things that seems to me this book is doing is maybe counteracting that slightly and, and sort of reclaiming certain histories. And, and that strikes me as a very valuable thing to do. But, but I think that that sense that one of the things that often gets um, overlooked about how Irishness is, is articulated in American life is that many Americans are 
uh, multi-ethnic and multi-racial, right? So now we find ourselves in an era of sort of consumer genetics, right? Ancestry.com, you know, who do you think you are, this kind of thing. And that might be bringing some of that into a new phase. I'm not certain. I think that is yet to be determined. But it has often been the case, and this is one of the things that drew me to, to want to study Irishness in the first place, is that when you ask Americans who don't necessarily know their particular ethnic background, which is very common, they often elect Irishness. They choose Irishness from among the constituent ethnicities that, 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 that they are made of. And, um, and the current president is doing that, right? Joe Biden does this. Joe Biden's Secret Service name is Celtic, right? But he is not exclusively of Irish descent. He's a part Irish descent. But you know, as, as we can already see, Irishness informs his political brand in many ways, which is, to some extent, you know, trying to fashion itself along Kennedy-esque lines, this sort of thing. So I, I guess I'm just struck by the ongoing currency of Irishness in American life. And again, it's capacity to shapeshift according to the circumstances. But, but I think there, there is something very useful about a contribution like this book, which seeks to, as I say, kind of redress the sense of a proprietary relationship uh, between the United States and Irishness as an identity category. And Miriam, you mentioned that you particularly love the innovators, the, the pioneers, the disruptors. Uh, a very interesting one was Richard Kyle Fox, who uh, was the pioneer of tabloid journalism. I know. Who do you? And he apparently, I, I, this one I was reading earlier, really enjoying dipping in and out of it. Um, he died. We're just past his 100th anniversary of his death. He's buried in uh, a, a, apparently a um, fancy mausoleum at, in, in Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx. I must check it out sometime. Um, you know. You know who knew? That's what I keep every every time I pick up this book. I'm like, who knew? And I spent the last 15 years, like you know, trying to find people like the people who were collected together in this in this collection. And he also helped popularise boxing, boxing in America. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he, he's both in it for the boxing and for the tabloid journalism. He gets he gets almost. Uh, Two reasons to be included. Awarded up there with Don King, you know, in terms of promoting of boxing. So the the the, the variable, and, and you know, we come it at an important time demographically in terms of the United States. The United States, as it exists today, we come in in big numbers. We speak English. We are white. You know, we 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 move up that ladder. And it is not to say that we don't come up against it when we come in. Um, and I do think, to, to Nevin's point, in terms of some of our commune, some of our societal and cultural values as we replicate them in the United States, serve us very well. And remember that the 50 people in this and the couple of hundred in the Dictionary of Irish Biography more generally are not representative at all of the thousands and millions of Irish immigrants who just went there and had very quote-unquote ordinary lives. But these, you know, the selection in, in this collection and, and what the Dictionary of Irish Biography does more generally um, gives us, as an educator in the United States, it gives us great pathways in terms of further research, further exploration, and informing some of the um, historical events and setting that inform, for example, the likes of Diane's work today. And Neville, it goes back to what you say about storytelling. There are great stories here, and uh, I think the real thing that's coming out is that it's also there are very different types of stories. Yes, but I, I, I want to go to a broader context as well about uh, the relationship between being Irish and the United States. <clears throat> there is only one country in the world that has its national day celebrated, where its presidential house is lit green, and where people walk down the streets, half of them not even Irish, by the way, um, pretending to be Irish. So what does that say about the imprint of the Irish upon the United States of America? And then you go to something else. You go to bluegrass, you go to bluegrass. Uh, you go to country, country music. Where are the roots? It's Irish, it's Irish music. So these stories are microcosms of the good and the bad, the unfortunate and the successful, which, which are wonderful. But they, what their brothers and sisters and others have created is a very different place in the psyche of America for the Irish people and for the island of Ireland. And I think the two examples I've given you just show the, the breadth of that impact coming from a small island. 
And Miriam and Diane, I, I wonder, it's something that's often said, and I wonder in your experiences, is it true that uh, Irish consume more history than people of other countries, that we seem to have this insatiable appetite for uh, the past, for these stories, for these connections. I don't know, is, is, certainly if you look at bookstores in, in Ireland compared to bookstores elsewhere, there's all, there can be huge Irish history, world history sections that they're definitely, or, or is that just our own perception of it? I don't know. I'm an Irish person in the United States. Diane's an American here in Ireland studying us. Um, I do think that uh, the scale it makes a big difference as well, Patrick. I do think we're, you know, we are, you know, some would argue obsessed with our history. Our history is very present in our daily lives in comparison to the American um, sensibility. Um, I don't know, Diane, if you would disagree in terms of forward-looking and um, um, individualism. We're, we're, we're very much shaped by our history here and our geography as a small island. For like, you know, the, la the pre-pandemic, the, the, I, I heard a remarkable statistic, which I think I, I'm remembering correctly. There are 250 academic university presses in the United States alone. Just think about that in terms of the scale. Our scale here is so much smaller, and I think the access, the reach, the engagement with the public um, is very vibrant. I don't know if you disagree, Diane. No, I completely agree. I, and I think one of the things that I love about living in Ireland is how bibliophilic and cinephilic as well, you know, Irish people often are. And, and so, yeah, I do think in general, it's hard to, to, to speak in any other than just very general terms on these kinds of matters. But, but yeah, I, I think in general, the, there is that kind of curiosity in this. Because, you know, and I can remember not long after I moved to this country getting into a taxi and and um, being asked, of course, what part of America I was from. And when I, when I said where I was from, the taxi driver said, oh, let me tell you a story. And he proceeded to recount this story about the, town, the next town over from where I grew up in New York. And, and so those kinds of like micro forms of knowledge can be very powerful and, and, and potent on lots of different levels. But um, yeah, I, I mean, I guess I, I'm struck by the fact that, that Irishness for a lot of Americans is linked with this fantasy of an intact homeland, of a place, you know, Ireland that never changes. And then there are these interesting things that happen sometimes when tourists come here or people who, who you know, have done genealogy in their family or have a name that they want to track, this kind of thing, come here and they actually confront what Ireland is and all of its complexity and increasing diversity as well. Um, I guess I'm also thinking a lot about just the, the recent effects of the pandemic and, and the extent to which that, that, that churn of Irish of, of American visitors to this country has been put on pause for, for the moment and what that's going to do to this relationship at this time. Um, I, I'm, I'm honestly not sure there may be good and, and bad qualities to that, but that regular cross-fertilization has been interrupted in a way that none of us have known before. And, and that, may prevent, that may present a kind of an opportunity for a recalibration of certain things. Um, I, it's not really anything other than just a speculation at this point, but I do wonder about that. Liz, as our, as our, as our co-editor, I'm going to leave the final word with you. And let's go back to this question that was posed, the, the underdogs or overlords. I, 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 th I almost think that if this was an exam that our, our undergraduates were doing, the correct answer might be not to, not to go down either route and to maybe uh, reconceptualize it in the way that uh, our panel has been doing. Where would you see the story falling or what do you think the 50 lives in the book show that is it a multiplicity of experiences? It, does it go beyond easy categorization like that? I hope so. Um, that was certainly an ambition to do that. And uh, I suppose part of it was, was my own perception of what I, an Irish-American is or what Irish-America is. And I would have kind of fallen into the underdog camp definitely before, you know, really getting into the research um, and had that vision of you know, it's the famine generation coming over on the coffin ships, getting treated very poorly and all the rest of it. And obviously that is, in terms of the numbers of Irish immigrants, that is the largest portion of people from the middle of the 19th century to the early 20th. Um, and they were fairly uniformly poor and fairly uniformly Catholic. But 
there was also other stories to be to be told. Um, and so within the book, we have Catholics, but we also have Methodists, we have Presbyterians, we have people of no religion, um, and we have people from all over the country, about 20 of the counties are represented, and you know people from, from different class categories, educational backgrounds, etc. So I, I, I hope that, I mean, my answer to the overlord underdog question would of course be both. Um, and I hope that we've got there, and that's evident in the book. Okay, well, I'm going to hand back to Ruth Hegarty, who is the Royal Irish Academy's managing editor for publications. Uh, but just to say, I think what we have heard there from the discussion is a sense of how this volume makes us not, not only provides 50 stories of the Irish experience in America, it also makes us think anew about the Irish contribution to uh, the world and also I think has a message for us today as well and makes us think about uh, some of these very uh, relevant issues about identity, about our position in the world and about the contribution we make, uh, both positive and negative. So uh, thank you very much to our panel and I'll hand back to Ruth. Thank you very much, Patrick, and to all of the panel, thank you for a really stimulating discussion. I really enjoyed it. And what I've been amazed with in working in publishing over the last 10 years is how, as archives are digitized, it democratizes access and can't help but complicate the narrative. Because if you read 50 stories, you get a very different picture than the, than the grand narrative you might have had before when you went in. So thank you all very much. And it remains for me to thank Patrick and Neville and his amazing team here. We've been looked after so well from the very first day we floated the idea of launching here. But I don't want your evening to be over. Those of you who are online, I invite you to go to Epic and have a look and come the next time you're able to in Dublin. And if you would also go to the Royal Irish Academy website and buy the book, because I'm the publisher and I hope you will buy a copy of the book. But also there, you can dip into the Dictionary of Irish Biography. You can explore 11,000 lives if you want to complicate your narrative. And for those of you who are here, Epic are staying open. They've opened the museum especially for you. So you can go downstairs and um, explore the museum there. And I invite you to go to the shop. Jilly and her team have kept it open for us especially. The editors have signed the book, so I hope you'll go down there. And it's not just that book that's there, but there's lots of other things there. You might be able to do a little bit of shopping in your own private shop when you're here. So it just remains for me to thank my own team, to thank Epic, and to thank all of you online and in person to come. And in honor of Irish lives in America, I wish you all a happy Thanksgiving. <laughs>